Church, if you could agree that His mercy is more, would you join me by saying, Amen. Amen. At this time, the children who have registered for Children's Church can be dismissed. You can meet Pastor Nathan and Amy and, and the helper over there at the door. So if you'll make your way over there for children's worship. As they are making their way out, I want to invite you to open your Bible to Micah chapter 6. Micah 6. As you are turning there, I wanted to let you know that the Lord has blessed us with a good week. Emma has had a very good week. I thank you for your continued prayers and ask you to continue to pray that you'll get stronger and stronger and uh, we can one day have the tracheostomy removed. So please continue to pray to that end. Well, we will be in Micah 6-8 for the next month. And just to let you know the path that we're going to be going down, we'll be following the way the verse is structured. So today we're going to focus on the verse part, first part of the verse where it says, The Lord's told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? So today we're going to think deeply about this idea that God does require something of us. Next week we'll look at the next part as we dive deep into what does He require. Next week we're going to talk about doing justice. We'll try to understand what biblical justice means and then think about how we can do that because that is a call placed on every individual follower of Jesus. The following week we'll examine loving kindness. Once again, what does that mean and how do we do that? What does it mean to love kindness? And then we'll conclude this series by taking a look at the last phrase, to walk humbly with your God. What does it mean to walk humbly with God? So that's the path that we're going to go down. And we're stepping on this path because of the, the times that we live within. Probably like me, you have heard over and over again this phrase, since we are living in these unprecedented times. But as I've thought about it, I disagree with that statement. I disagree with it because these times are not unprecedented. There have been pandemics before. In fact, even in the United States, we have suffered many epidemics. For example, between 1832 and 1866, three waves of cholera swept across the nation. 1918, there was the epidemic of the Spanish flu. And between 1916 until 1952, when a vaccine was developed, there were many outbreaks of polio within our nation. This is not the first epidemic. There have also been times of civil unrest. In fact, you could make the argument that protest is part of America's DNA. I say that because at the very beginning of our nation, we arose out of protest. That phrase, taxation without representation, that was a protest. And then it did become very physical. For example, with the Boston Tea Party as colonists disguised as Indians dumped tea the British owned into Boston Harbor in protest. It's not the first time we have encountered protest as a nation. Take, for example, even within the last 60 years, the summer of 1967 saw 157 protests, both peaceful and violent, 157 in a four-month span within our nation in that summer. I would say these times are unique because we're encountering both of them at the same time. And this has certainly been magnified because incidences 
incidents of injustice that spark these protests are now viewed in real time by anyone who has a cell phone nearby. And then they are seen repetitively. You add to this what I call ideological entrenchment. Where we become entrenched in our ideas so that we do not even engage in conversation with those who may disagree. And furthermore, not only do we not engage in discussion about, about, uh, about ideas, we demonize anyone that is on the other side. In many ways, I think our nation is sitting on top of a keg of gunpowder and we're holding sparklers. But I want you to know that this morning with all that pessimism I've just gone through, I am not pessimistic. God is sovereign, therefore I don't fear. God's kingdom is forever, therefore I do not despair. God's plan is perfect, so I do not doubt. Furthermore, church, rather than wringing our hands in worry, thinking about what is going to happen, we need to recognize that God has placed us here and now at this time according to His divine plan. To use the language of Esther, for such a time as this, God has placed us here. If I may use another Old Testament reference in the book of Chronicles to the men of Issachar, this tribe who is spoken of as saying, these men understood the times so that they knew what to do. We must understand these times. And furthermore, we must understand what God requires of us. That's why we look at Micah. It's not enough just to understand the times. We need to understand what God is calling us to do. Let me give you a little background. Micah was a prophet who came to the people of Judah. Now at the time Micah is preaching, Israel had gone through a civil war. They had split from one nation into two. There was the northern kingdom that still held on to the name Israel. And then there was the southern kingdom that went by Judah. Micah shows up to preach to the people of Judah. And when he began preaching, they were shocked. They didn't understand why Micah was telling them to repent because, one, they were still doing all the religious things that they believed were expected of them. They were going to the temple. They were sacrificing. They were doing all the things that ritual religion required. Furthermore, times were good. At the time Micah preached, they were enjoying economic prosperity. The stock market in Jerusalem was at an all-time high. All the markets in Jerusalem were overflowing. Crops were coming in and they were coming in very well. People were making a good living. So everybody's saying, what's the problem? But underneath everything going on, God saw something that was hideous. All was not well. You see, the Bible teaches us that the health of a nation is not determined by economic prosperity or military might. We can look at those things and think that everything is going well, but that is not how God judges a nation. God judges a nation, I think, on two things. One, is that nation seeking Him? And two, He judges a people based on how they treat the elderly, the widows, the orphans, and the poor. In other words, the powerless. That's how God looks and judges the health of a nation. Do the people seek Him? And how do they treat 
the powerless. Those are indicators to assess the health of any people and any nation. And that is why God sent the prophets. You see, the prophets came to call people back to God to say, you're looking at simply a mirage. What you think is God's blessing really isn't. Because you're not seeking Him and you're not concerned about the powerless. Therefore, as as Micah preaches, he calls the people back to God. Before we get to verse 8, I want to walk you through the verses leading up to that. The structure of these verses is a court case. Micah uses courtroom imagery, courtroom language to get across what is the point is. In fact, you read verse 1, hear what the Lord says. It's a summons to appear in court. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Now, what he is saying is he is personifying mountains and hills because those were recognized as everlasting. It's a way of saying, let those things that are eternal stand judge over us. The next phrase should cause a little bit of sweat to roll down our backs and our knees to knock. Verse 2, hear you mountains the indictment of the Lord. Hear you enduring foundations of the earth for the Lord has an indictment against his people. He will contend with Israel. Yahweh's the prosecutor. And he says here's the problem, here's the indictment. Verses 3 through 5, Yahweh begins speaking. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. In other words, why are you treating me the way you're treating me? That's what God's saying. Why are you treating me like this? Verse 4, for I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I saved you. Why are you treating me like this? I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. In other words, I gave you godly leaders. Why are you treating me like this, God asked. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. That was an instance in Numbers where Balak hired Balaam, who was a prophet, to curse Israel. But God intervened. And rather than cursing Israel, Balaam blessed Israel. So God took what was meant to be a curse and turned it into blessing. He said, rather than cursing you, I blessed you. Why are you treating me like this? Then he says, what happened? Have you forgotten what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? That you may know the saving acts of the Lord. From Shittim to Gilgal is where the Lord brought them into the promised land. Walking on dry land through the Jordan River. He's saying, I did all these things. Why are you treating me like this? Now, verses 6 through 7, the people answer. And their answer has a level of incredulity. They're basically saying, Lord, what do you mean? We're sacrificing. So they answer, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? In other words, Lord, what do you want from us? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, the people say, Lord, we're worshiping you. There's blessing. What more do you want, God? And then God answers. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with the Lord your God. 
it's clear that the Lord requires his people to act and to live in a certain way. The language of require found in verse 8, what does the Lord require of you is that of expectation. The Lord expects something of us. He expects a behavior from us. Think of it like a job description. Think about where you are employed now. Maybe there's specific duties you are given and they're expected to happen. I, I remember my first job out of high school, well, I can say my first real job, I worked at the Athens Utility Board. I did not have a written job description, but the boss met with me the first day and he said, Mark, this is what we expect of you. Sweep the docks, keep the warehouse clean, clean the toilets, mow the yard, keep it looking neat, and then do anything else I ask you to do. That's your job description. That's how you're gauged. Are you being successful or unsuccessful? Well, God has given us a job description. Now, let me be clear. These, this description, these expectations are not meant as the ticket to heaven. Remember, God's already said, I've redeemed you, you are my people. But because we are his people, he calls us to act a certain way, a way that reflects his character. Because you have been saved, he says, this is how you are to live. God expects us to live a certain way. Now many inside the church and outside the church downplay the idea that God expects anything of us. Sometimes I think we take the doctrine of God's grace and we abuse it by saying, well, it really doesn't matter how I live. God just expects me to thank Him for His grace. In fact, this attitude is reflected in an interview that the musician Paul Simon had in the Rolling Stone magazine several years ago when somehow the conversation turned to what God expects. Paul Simon said, quote, The only thing that God requires from us is to enjoy life and love. It doesn't matter if you accomplish anything. You don't have to do anything but appreciate that you're alive and love. That's the whole point, end quote. There are many that would echo that. God just wants you to be happy and enjoy life. As if on the day of judgment we stand before Him, God's going to look at us and say, Well, did you enjoy life? Did you do it your way? And if we say yes, He'll say, Well done. No. No. God has expectations. And these expectations are not just for those that are saved, but for all of humanity. Notice back in verse 8, he says, he has told you, oh man. That's very curious. He doesn't say God has told you Israel what he expects. He broadens it. Oh man is the Hebrew word Adam, Adam. He's basically saying humanity, God has told you what he expects. This is saying that all will stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account to how we have lived according to his expectations. Now some would say that's not fair. What about those who don't know God? But I want you to look at the language of verse 8. He has told you speaks of revelation. God has revealed what is good. Now, good refers to what is beneficial, what is going to be the best. So, in other words, God has told us what is the best. What We want an outcome that causes us to flourish. God's told us what is best. And this is a case where in the parallelism of the verse where the main point is emphasized, what is good is parallel with what the Lord requires. What God requires of us is what is good. What God requires is what is beneficial. We want human flourishing. We want our country to flourish. We want our communities to flourish. We flourish by doing what God requires. What does God require? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with Him. Now before people rise up and say, well, that's not fair. How do people know what God wants? He has revealed it. He's told us. 
That's the language of revealing. Keep in mind that we would not know God if God did not reveal himself to us. So great is the distance between who and what we are in our being and who God is in his being. We can't comprehend God unless he condescends to us. Do his praise, he has. He has revealed himself in one way what is called specific or special revelation. Specific revelation is where God reveals himself in, to a specific people at a specific time at a specific place. The Bible is an example of specific revelation. Not everybody is born with a Bible. You and I hold in, your, in our hands God's specific revelation of himself to us pointing to Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus is specific revelation par excellence. None greater than him. But God has also revealed himself in what's called general revelation. General revelation, in other words, God, God making himself known. He makes himself known to all people in all times, in all places. So that as it says in Romans, no one is without excuse. The greatest example of general revelation is nature. When one really stops and looks at the beauty of nature, the complexity of nature, to me, you cannot draw any other conclusion that God made it. But that's not the only way God has generally revealed himself. He has revealed himself in conscience. We are born with an innate sense of how things ought to be. We know it intuitively. There are things that we do intuitively. No one's taught that to us. Let me use this as an example of intuitive thinking that no one trains us in. Have you, you've all heard the phrase, the pitter-patter of little feet. Pitter-patter. Have you ever heard anybody say, the patter-pitter of little feet? I just love the patter-pitter of little feet. Or take whenever a bell rings and we say, the bell went ding-dong. Have you ever heard anybody say, the bell went dong-ding? That is what ling linguists call the rule of a blot reduplication. I had never heard of that in my life until I started studying this. What that rule states is that when you have two words in a pattern, it always follows the order I-A-O in that order. Always. So politicians may flip-flop, but they will never flop-flip. That's never taught in schools. There's no rule for that. It's done intuitively. If you don't think that we have an intuitive sense of justice in the way things ought to be, stand and watch children play on a playground. And watch what happens when a ball is taken physically, forcibly from one person. When Junior's playing with the ball and Susie comes and grabs it, what does Junior do? That's not fair! We don't have to teach a sense of fairness. It's innate within us. Or even if it's adults watching a game and someone does something that seems to be unscrupulous, what do they say? He's cheating. That's not fair. God has given us a conscience that teaches us the way things ought to be. Now what happens over time, according to Romans 2, is that the further we move away from God, the more our conscience becomes hardened. So we begin to lose that sense of right and wrong. And that is exactly what has happened in our nation. You can see this because the more uh, a people 
move away from the idea that God is true and He has given us an innate sense of right and wrong, we will seek guidance from external sources. Somewhere, somehow. That's why the more and more people move away from God, the more and more they will seek laws to legislate behavior because there's no overarching thought of mortality, not mortality, but morality anymore. We look for external means to teach us what we should be doing intuitively. The danger of that is that as we shift away more and more from objective truth and the idea that there is right and wrong, it's going to lead us further and further into mob rule where majority makes right. Or it will lead us to authoritarian rule where the one with the power makes the rules. Because as we move away from a transcendent truth, we will seek something to take its place. And it's simply not sustainable. That's why we need to be the voice that says, God has established a standard. God has spoken. God shows us what He requires with us, of us. He shows it in His Word, and He shows it written in our consciences of how people are to be treated, of what is right and wrong. And if a person questions you on that and says, well, how can you say that there is a God who has a moral order? You can simply ask Him this, follow this thinking. We live in an age where we recognize the need for moral reform. That's nothing new. Moral reform has occurred. There have always been moral reformers who step up and say, this ought not to be. If there is no objective standard of truth, how can anyone say something is wrong? In other words, if we say, well, that ought not to be, we need to reform that morally, okay, why? If they answer, well, society says that that's not wrong and that needs to change, okay, fine. But what do you do with a society where, for example, Nazism was the predominant majority thought? If you follow the majority makes the rules and that determines morality, then we have no right whatsoever to say that they were wrong. Unless there is objective truth. That's known as the reformer's dilemma. If there is no standard of how things ought to be, we can't speak of change being necessary. But God has revealed the way things should be. He has said we are to do what? Justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before Him. What that means for us is that we need to seek even more now to be ambassadors for His kingdom. That we need to be that voice speaking out. What that means is that if we look at this text where He says what? does the Lord require of you? Knowing that what He requires is for our benefit, we need to start by examining our lives. It amazes me the number of technologies that are available within the medical field to get a picture of what's going on inside a person. Sonogram, x-ray, CT scan, MRI, all of them are given to take a picture of the heart, the body, the bones. The Word of God is like an x-ray for our spirit. Where do we stand? Are we letting the Lord work in our lives? Are we allowing the Lord to guide us in how we interact by saying, Lord, what do you expect of me? You see, all of us look at the world around us and we filter. We, we make decisions based on, on our ideas. But sometimes we never ask, what's shaping our ideas? When I was working on my master's degree in a philosophy of religion class... The professor said, I want you to look out, class, and tell me what you see. 
So we looked through the window and we started talking about, well, I see a mother pushing her child in a stroller. I see a square, a squirrel playing. I see a student reading. And the professor said, all those things are out there, but nobody has mentioned one thing. Nobody has mentioned the glass that you're looking through. You're all seeing it, but you're not seeing it. And his point was, through what lens are we looking at the world and determining what is right and wrong and the way things ought to be? Sometimes that lens is tradition. Sometimes it's the voices around us. And those voices are not quite. (laughs) I did something this past week that I want to encourage you to do. I was convicted for a moment because I realized how frequently I'm picking up my phone and just scrolling through news feeds. And I was getting discouraged and frustrated until finally I said, you know what, enough's enough. I'm going to fast from the news. For a day, for 24 hours, I did not look at the news. One, I survived, and it was wonderful just to take a break, to decompress. Because sometimes we are influenced without even realizing it. That's why we need to be sure that the intake we have of God's Word is enough so that as we engage with the world around us, we're thinking about things biblically. Our prescription should be the Word of God as we look into the world. So we have to start with us. Then we need to ask another question. Once we are willing to examine our lives to say, Okay, Lord, this is what you expect of me. How am I doing? The next question is this. Are we willing to commit to be light? Are we willing to move beyond all the political rhetoric that surrounds us and to come back to that unpopular statement of, Thus says the Lord. See, there's a reason why the prophets weren't popular. Because they came to the people to say, You know what? You're ignoring the powerless. You're not walking humbly with God. Repent. In the 5th century, there was a monk by the name of Telemachus. He was what's known as the Egyptian fathers. He had gone into the Egyptian desert where he prayed, fasted, isolated himself so that he could walk with God. But Telemachus was convicted. He realized that his walk with the Lord had become very self-centered. And so he felt compelled that he needed to go into the world to speak and to teach of God's love. And he decided that if he was going to go in, go big. He was going to go to Rome, the largest city of the empire. So that's what he did. Now at this time, Rome was a Christian city. Christianity had been deemed the religion of the empire. And as he went into Rome, he got caught up in a crowd. You see, he didn't realize that he was going into the Rome, to Rome the very day that a Roman general was being honored for defeating the Gauls. So he came in in the middle of a parade. In fact, about 80,000 people, it's estimated, making their way to the Colosseum to watch the games. The games were this. Prisoners of war from Gaul were going to be placed in the center of the Colosseum where they either had to fight to the death And then those who survived will be fed to the lions. Not Christians, but Gauls, the enemies, the prisoners. So Telemachus walks in with the crowd. And he's shocked. This is Christian Rome. And they are rejoicing that these men and women for whom Jesus died are being slaughtered in front of them. It's entertainment. 
And Telemachus can't take it anymore. You see, he's looking at things now through different eyes. Everybody else was being swept along with the tide of popular opinion. But with fresh eyes, Telemachus runs down the steps, leaps over the wall into the middle of the Colosseum, stands between two of the prisoners and starts screaming out, In the name of God, stop! In the name of God, stop! They set down their weapons. But the crowd didn't. The crowd became angry. They began booing and screaming for this, this crazy man to be taken off. And they started throwing things at him. To the point where Telemachus was killed. Beaten to death by the crowd. When his body fell down, it was like a pall fell over the Colosseum. The people began leaving. A week later, Honorius... The Caesar at that time proclaimed Telemachus a martyr and put an end to the games once and for all. What happened? One man with fresh eyes stepped forward to say, Thus saith the Lord. Church, that's the model we are to follow. To represent the kingdom. Why? Because God expects us to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before him. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me if you will. I recognize there's a gravitas to this message. But it's one that I believe is needed today. If we look at the world and say the world needs changing. The first step is to say Lord how do I need to change? Change is hard. The Spirit empowers us, but our flesh fights against it. So this day, maybe that day where you're being called anew by the Holy Spirit to examine your life according to the expectations of God. Now there may be a lot of questions. And I'm going to do my best over the next three weeks to answer those questions about what it looks like. But you know what? Even if we don't have all the answers as to what it looks like, that should not stop us from saying, Lord, here I am. Help me. Help me to live according to your requirements. Pray with me. O oh Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, search us. We are bombarded with so many messages every day. Lord, there's a vitriol, a hatred that seems just to permeate our society. Father, help us to be different. Help us, Lord, to speak the truth in love. Help us to be your hands that show compassion, your feet that run to those who are hurting, and your voice to proclaim the gospel. That we, Lord, would see a change. A change in us, a change in our community, and a change in our country. Grant these, Father, we pray, that you may be honored. 